Tonight we're in Romans chapter 6, which not by coincidence we believe, but by design, speaks about living under the cross, living under the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It has that as its theme. And we pray that the Lord would use it in a fresh way to make our hearts sensitive to these issues. Grace is one of those words that we need to define from time to time. We need to refine our thinking in it. It's the Greek word charis. It was sometimes used as a greeting, but it means a lot more than just hello, greeting, have a graceful, wonderful day. The Latin word is gracia, which sounds a lot like gracias in Spanish. In fact, it has Spanish has Latin as its root system. It's a Latin language. It does mean favor or favorable or graciousness. It's used 150 times in the New Testament. Now, there is a classical Greek meaning, but then there's a New Testament Greek meaning. If you looked up the meaning of grace in Webster's Dictionary, you might want to try that sometime because you'll be misled. Not on purpose, it's just that meanings change over time. Language is fluid. And they'll say, grace, meaning number one, a short prayer said before meals. There are a few other meanings of it, but that's the primary meaning in Webster. The classical Greek meaning, in classical Greek literature, classical meaning outside the common day street Koine Greek, was the idea of a superior person, like an officer or a king, showing favor towards somebody who is inferior in rank. Now that's closer to the meaning, but it's not exact. The 150 times that the New Testament uses the term grace, it is almost always the idea of the attitude of God toward humanity. The attitude of God toward humanity, and I would define it as favorable sh favor shown to an unfavorable person. You could say unmerited favor, that's how we've always defined it, but maybe it's best to call it favor shown to someone who is unfavorable. That would be grace. If you think that it's easy to do, just try that. Next time, somebody who is not been favorable toward you. You might want to go out of your way to show favor to them. And you would say they don't deserve it. That's the whole point of grace. And I think it was our last study that we tried to show you the difference between justice, mercy, and grace. And we used the traffic ticket as the example. If you get stopped by a cop and he says you were going 85 and a 30, they throw you in jail. But let's say he said um, you deserve a citation. That would be justice. If he said, you deserve a citation, but I won't give it to you, here's a warning, that's mercy. If he said, you deserve a citation, I'm going to write you one, now I'll pay your citation, I'll pay the fine, that's grace. That word is used so many times, it's used in this book, and it is the second division of the book of Romans, at least according to our outline that we began with, we saw that the first few chapters dealt with the wrath of God. He painted a black picture. And with that black background, he now draws the streaks of light through the picture. The grace of God 
That's the section of Romans that he is unfolding before us after showing how miserable we all are, how bad off the human race is. He now points how good we have it in Christ. The question we left off with last time is, um, how much grace is there? Is there enough for me? Jesus died, we say, for the sins of the whole world. Does that include me? You know, you might think, um, um, maybe I'm the exception. I mean, I'm really bad. I've thought some really bad things, and I've done some pretty bad things. Is there enough grace for me? And so just to go over a few verses, look in verse 15. The free gift is not like the offense, for by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, and note that word, abounded to many. Go down a few verses to verse 17. For by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And then my all-time favorite verse of that chapter, verse 20, Moreover, the law entered that the events, offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Is there enough grace for you? Oh, yes. It is abundant. And we said that when grace abounds, or when sin abounds, grace overflows. That was the translation we left you with last time. Overflowing grace. So the last chapter shows us that we were ruined as a human race by one man's offense. That's Adam. One man's sin. Another sin ruined it for all of us. And by another man's merit, that's the second part of that chapter, we're saved. So Paul shows the paradise was lost, and he shows the paradise was regained in Christ. You know, we often look at Adam, we talked about him last time, and we say, man, did that guy blow it. If there was ever a guy who should win the award of, like, the worst possible mistake anybody could ever make, the ultimate faux pas of history, it would be Adam. And so we often say, that guy, when I see him, you know, I'm gonna, I have a few things I want to tell him, and Eve especially, boy, she really, you know, on and on. Thing is, we have the same choice. There is a tree in front of us that's the tree of life, the cross. And this time of the year reminds us of that tree, the cross of Jesus Christ, that gives life to anyone. And for someone to say, well, Adam, what a jerk he was, and yet I'm not going to turn my life to Christ, you know, you're looking in the mirror. It's the same mistake he made. He could have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, and he chose the wrong tree. And many people today are trying to fill themselves with the wrong substance when the tree of life is before them. Now, a question is at the beginning of chapter 6. There's a lot of questions that Paul brings up. In fact, he's going to ask a whole lot of questions in verses 1 and on down through chapter 6 and 7. He'll ask them and then he'll answer them. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. There's a fundamental problem that he touches on. Before we get into the problem itself, just a little bit of philosophy on the problem. We have a hard time with grace. I've noticed that about myself and about other people. We like to think we've earned it. The whole idea of justification, being declared righteous before God, and we didn't deserve it. That kind of freedom, that kind of grace, that kind of justification doesn't set well with us. And part of the problem is we know our own human nature too well. We know we don't deserve it. And even when we come to Christ, there is still that old man he's going to deal with tonight. And Paul deals with it in other places. Put on the new man. Don't worry about the old man. Get rid of that. Because there still is the old nature that wars within us. We all know what that's like. And all of us have the capacity to do anything in a depraved way. Because of that corrupted, depraved human nature. I was reading a book by Paul Harvey some time back. And he opened with a story about... A scene that is pretty typical at Christmas time in the malls, you know how you can't find a parking space? Well, there was a woman who was driving through the parking lot in her Mercedes, and she was looking for a parking spot, and there wasn't one to be found, but she saw some man coming from the mall with presents, packages, so she thought, I'll wait, and sure enough, it was pretty close to her, and so he puts the packages in the trunk, and she waits in line, in queue, for that car to pull out, and she's going to take his spot. So he pulls out and goes away. But before she can pull in, some hot rod kid in his red Corvette behind him cuts around her and sweeps right in and gets the parking space. Pulls out the keys, throws them up, catches them, and is walking toward the mall. And she has her window down. She says, you can't do that. I've been waiting here for a long time. You just cut me off and took my spot. And he smiled and said, well, lady, that's how it works when you're young and quick. And she looked at him with that thought of, what do I have to lose? And she floored it. And she crunched her Mercedes right into the rear side of that Corvette. Just, it's, you know, it's fiberglass, just decimated it. And he stood there aghast. And he said, you can't do that. And she smiled and said, that's how it works when you're old and rich. And she (laughs) took off. I have a hunch that we like that story, maybe a little too much. Because we've all thought, yeah, I'd like to do that. And so we say things like, man, you know, we talk about, I'm no saint. I've heard people, Christians say, well, I'm no saint. If you're a Christian, you are a saint. And that kind of talking only represents ignorance of what a saint means. It means you're separated unto God. You become a saint the very moment you trust in Jesus Christ. You're declared a saint 
then it takes you a lifetime to cause you to be one in holiness before the Lord. Justification, just if I'd never sinned, doesn't mean you're perfect, as we said last time and the time before. It means you are declared righteous. Tonight, however, there's another word in our text. If you have the New King James, it's translated holiness. You're not, you could look down and try to find it. It's in the chapter. We're not going to go ahead. You'll get to it. But it's the same word, sanctification. Now, I know some of these words we don't like, but I want you to learn them. Just like you learned justification, I want you to learn sanctification. And I know it sounds very stained glass, but it's very important. It's related to justification, though it's different. Now, I want to tell you the difference between justification and sanctification, which is becoming holy. Justification is a one-time declaration, whereas sanctification is an ongoing process. A one-time declaration versus an ongoing process. Justification is an act. Sanctification is a work. You are a work in progress. You're a fixer-upper. Okay? You're like the old jalopy in the, in the uh, junkyard, and God drove by and said, I can fix that up. You know, that's a classic. Could be a classic. And as God, he foresees what you could become with a new engine, new paint job, sanding, little bondo, loving care, fix you up. It's an ongoing process. You're declared righteous from the beginning. You're declared in working order. But then the sanctification is that work, an ongoing process. Justification happens the moment you trust Christ. Sanctification happens every moment afterwards until glorification. So you have justification, sanctification, glorification one day. That's when you're in heaven. Justification is the moment you trust Christ. Sanctification is every moment thereafter to the time of glorification, which is found in another chapter. We'll get to that. Look at it this way. Justification, you're declared righteous. Sanctification, he makes you righteous. He makes you what he says you are. It's been said very, very well that God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you way too much to leave you the way you are. So Jesus is in the business of building a kingdom. He's catching fish, but he always cleans the fish that he catches. He doesn't tell the fish, now you get cleaned up before you come to me. Clean up your act. No, he catches dirty fish, but then he cleans them. And that's sanctification. It's the process of cleaning. Holiness. Let's go back now to verse 1. What shall we say then, asked the apostle? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? See, there would be people who would have a tough time with the last couple verses of chapter 5 where it says, sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Overflowing grace in the midst of overflowing sin. There would be a couple people that would have a problem with that, a couple groups. Number one, the Jews, who believed you must have a rigid compliance to all of the commandments of God. They divided them up into positive and negative. 613 commandments altogether, 248 positive, 365 negative. That... That law provided the parameter of conduct. And it would sound like Paul is discounting those parameters, talking about this grace that could lead to lawlessness. 
then the Greek who would be listening to this could also have a problem because the Greek's cosmology or view of the way things are in the world, the Greek's cosmology is that you have all of these gods out there that are ruling over different parts of the world, and all of them are hostile, all of them are mean, and my main job in life is to make them like me. I want to placate them. And so the idea of free salvation, grace, justification freely, was foreign to those groups of people. The gospel of grace. People would say, that means I can live any way I want to. You know, if, if, can I just continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, playing off of chapter 5, verse 20, here's the idea. Okay, Paul, you just said that if I sin... If sin abounds, grace abounds much more, or grace overflows. Well, if that's the case, I'll keep on sinning and get soaked in grace. If sin brings the grace of God, why not just keep on sinning? Now, I know that sounds a bit ridiculous. It is ridiculous. That's Paul's whole point. Certainly not, he says. But there are people that say they are Christians that frequent churches and go to assemblies and open Bibles that think that way, that they can continue in sin and do anything they want to and have a casual attitude towards sin. They think it's no big deal to divorce. It's no big deal to live together. It's no big deal to have affairs. They'll just say, oh, God, forgive me, before they go to bed at night. And they have turned the grace of God into license. I remember as a Catholic, thinking, and I know a lot of Catholics have thought this because I grew up with them. I can do whatever I want because I can always go to confession and unload it. Then I have a clean slate, fill it up again, unload it. Then I remember my good Baptist friends, one by the name of Shelley, who said, I believe in eternal security. I can do anything I want. I can live any way I want to. I'm eternally secure in Christ. She had taken that doctrine to an unwarranted extreme as well. John writes this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So the question is asked. Well, I continue in sin. The grace may abound. I want to get soaked by grace. He answers it, and I love it. Certainly not. He's going to, you're going to hear that a few times in the next two chapters. Certainly not. There's different translations. King James, God forbid. The J.B. Phillips translation says, what a ghastly thought. The new skip version is, no way, Jose. Or maybe, no way, dude. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Here's the explanation. No, you're under new management. You're under new management. You've died to something that you might live. Here's some, it's very important. Now, we've often said that Romans is this pivotal book in the New Testament. That you've got to understand it. Paul believed that. Because Paul's going to tell, show you that one of the secrets to a victorious Christian life is that you know certain things, certain truths about God and about yourself. You're under new management. The Christian life begins with a death. You are dead to sin. You have turned from sin and repentance. 
turn to God. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean you'll never fall again. But as a practice, as a lifestyle, you're born again. That new birth meant also a death to something. And so what he's going to do in this chapter is show you that just as we are identified in Adam, we are now identified in Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, which means we should walk in newness of life, as he says down in verse 4. Now, he's going to be very practical in this chapter, and I think that's good because we're all faced with the problem that there are certain things in our lives that we continually falter in, we, we blow it in. We would look at certain things and say, man, I failed at that. I don't have the victory over this. I know that I'm released from the guilt of sin. Praise God. Oh, but I want to be released from the power of sin, the grip that sin has over my life. And so he deals with that issue. Let me give you four words that he will give you in this chapter, but I want to sum up that victory over sin by four words, and I want you to remember them. You're going to have a quiz on this. Know is the first word. He'll say that a few times. Knowing this, know that. We should know something. That's the first word. Reckon is the second word. Know, reckon, present, or yield, if you have the old King Jimmy tonight. Know, reckon, present, or yield. Fourth, obey. First of all, know. He says there are certain things you have to know. Then knowing these things, you have to act by faith on what you know. And then you have to do something in a very practical way of presenting yourself to God and not to Satan, not to sin, based on what you know and what you believe. And finally, obedience. Now, he gives an explanation, as we've already uncovered in a few of these verses, and it's an explanation by analogy. He talks about baptism. And it's really great because last Saturday we had a baptism over at Los Altos Pool. It was packed full of people. Many of you showed up and just were there to observe, to witness, to encourage. And uh, so awesome to see people who know that baptism isn't saving them, but they're making a declaration of their salvation by doing something that don't you know the world thinks has got to look ridiculous? We're running a pool, we're going to put swimming gear on, and we're going to stand on the edge of the pool and hop in, then you're going to dunk us, and we're going to get out, dry off, and go home. In fact, I often just love to look at some of the lifeguards as I'm explaining baptism. Uh, it's a very interesting dynamic. Now, the Jews had a baptism. So let's say he's writing this. He is writing it to the Romans. There would be Romans, Greeks, Jews who would be listening to this. The Jews, of course, had a mode of baptism that was before Christianity ever came on the scene. Before they would worship in the temple, they would have a purification, a ritual cleansing in a little bath called the mikvah, the mikvah. They would immerse themselves under the water. It would symbolize purity from the filth of the flesh. And then they would walk into the temple to offer their sacrifices. The ritual was to point to a reality. Even as Christian baptism, it's a ritual that points to a reality. The ritual is you're dead and you're alive. That better be real. Otherwise, you just got wet. That's it. You took a nice bath briefly. It didn't do you any good. But if you have been identified with Christ, it does a lot of good. It's very, very meaningful. Verse 3. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Now, I explained one time that baptism, like circumcision, 
is an outward symbol of an inward reality. It's sort of like this wedding ring. Now, if you see someone with a ring on their left hand, especially this finger of the left hand, you would infer one of two things. You should only be able to infer one thing. And at one time you could. It just meant they're married. But now it means A, they're married, or B, they went and bought a piece of jewelry and stuck it on their hand. But it should mean they're married. That's the symbol of a transaction. And so we look at the symbol and we think, that person's married. And so when you see somebody baptized or with a baptismal certificate or says, I'm a baptized Christian, that symbol should point to the reality of what it points to, the death, burial, and resurrection. As he says in verse 3, we were baptized into his death. Notice that he uses the word know there. That's the first step. There's a few things you ought to know about who you are in Christ and about what he's done for you. And I'm always a stickler on this. That's why I teach through the Bible. I know a lot of people don't like Bible teaching. They want entertainment. But Christian living is based on Christian learning. Your duty as a believer springs out of the doctrine you learn as a believer. And I believe that if Satan can keep you ignorant, he can keep you impotent. Just don't let them know anything. Just let them know a couple psalms and a few scripture verses out of, uh, you know, uh, Revelation or a couple out of Matthew. But it's important to know the Bible. Read it regularly. Love the Word of God. And I've read through Romans many times for many years. It's still so many fresh things. But here's one thing you ought to know, and that is you're identified with Christ. When he died... In a sense, you died. When he rose, in a great sense, you rose. So just as you were to identify with Adam in the last chapter, you're really to identify with the finished work of Jesus Christ in this chapter. You have a new relationship to sin. The relationship is you're dead to it. You're dead to it. I am crucified with Christ, Paul wrote, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you know that? Do you know that you are dead in Christ to all that old stuff? Now, keep a marker here. I don't want to get too rabbit trailed tonight, but look at Ephesians chapter 2. Paints another picture. Sort of the same thing, but it's important to look at it, I think. Ephesians chapter 2. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. And I always like to put my name in these verses when I read it devotionally. And skip, he has made alive, I who was dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath just as others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
Let me give you a, a picture of this. Remember Lazarus when he died? Jesus came and he had been in the grave how many days? Four days. In fact, when he said, roll away the tomb, his sister said, oh Lord, by now he stinketh. That's King James. It's a great, great description. In other words, the corpse has already started to corrupt. But he gazed into that hole of death and he said, Lazarus, come forth. Raised him from the dead and he appeared in the entrance of that tomb. But how did he appear? Like a mummy. He had all these grave clothes. You know, he just kind of hobbled out and stood there and he looked like a corpse upright. And what did Jesus say? Loose him and let him go. The very next chapter, he has been loosed and let go, and he's sitting with Christ eating dinner in fellowship. Raised with Christ, loosed from the bondage of the bandage, and then seated with Christ in fellowship with him. A beautiful picture of what happens when we are identified with the death, burial, and resurrection. Ephesians 2 and here in Romans 6. Dead, but he called us forth. Then we get loosed from all of those old patterns and habits, and he seats us together in heavenly places. So know that. Know that as a fact. I think a lot of Christians are in-betweeners. They live in between Good Friday and Easter Sunday their whole life. They're like on Saturday. They're, they're raised, but they're not... I mean, they, they've been crucified with Christ, but they haven't experienced the freedom of being set free and living the new life. They know what they've been saved from. They just don't know what they're saved to. So know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through the baptism, through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. When you go to get baptized, you are acknowledging your own death. You say, I'm identifying with Christ. The old man is dead. That doesn't mean your father if you're a 60s freak. Your old man is the old you, not your dad. The old you, the old ego all that you were in Adam is the old you, the old man. And you're to put on the new man. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. You died, and your life was hidden with Christ and God. So a baptism is a, a funeral service. It's sort of like a mock funeral service. It's a visual aid. The stage is the water. We don't, uh, when we baptize at least... Uh, sprinkle. Um, we don't um, splash. Uh, we don't squirt with a little squirt gun. We put you all the way under the water because it's a symbol of death and burial. And so we take you and we hold your nose and we submerge you under the water. And we wait five or six minutes <laughs> just to wash away all that junk. <laughs> now we put you down symbolically and we bring you up. And it's such a great sight to see a person springing out of the water with the water trailing behind them. And it's kind of like, ah, fresh breath, new life it symbolizes that. And I think it's a very effective witness, too. I know that one time we were in Israel and we were baptizing at the Jordan River. 
And it always draws a crowd because it's a, it's a place that a lot of tourists visit because they know that people baptize there. So we, have, uh, we had last time three buses and 150 people, and we're going through a couple hours of worship and baptizing people in the Jordan. And people are stopping and taking pictures and asking questions. And there was one group from South America. And uh, this girl named Olga was watching. And she asked a question, what are you doing? Well, we're baptizing. Well, what does that mean? And we shared with her what it means and shared the gospel. And she prayed to receive Christ over the wall as she was watching. Then she came down after she found out what it meant. She goes, I want to be baptized. And so we baptized her right on the spot. Can be a very effective witness to unbelievers. And often when we have baptisms, even at the pool, people will invite their unsaved friends. As if to say, see, I'm dead don't fetch me back anymore from the dead. It's dead, buried. I have a brand new life. I'm leaving it behind. So we have been united together, verse 5, in the likeness of his death. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, again, the word know, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. The old man... All that you were under Adam, it says here, is done away with. The Greek word katagero, put out of business. Rendered inoperative. I like put out of business. It's like Satan had a shop and your body was there. You were there laying there. And Jesus came in with a certificate of his death and resurrection and said, you're out of business. This one is mine He's claimed, I own him. I purchased him. You have no right to operate anymore in his life. He doesn't have to be your slave anymore. He's dead to you. He's alive to me. Speaking of a shop, I heard of a man who owned a, a, a cleaning, a dry cleaning shop and a dyeing shop. They would dye garments in it, D-Y-E. And he had a motto that he hung up above his door. Uh, that said, we die, D-Y-E, to live. And we live to die, D-Y-E. And the more that we, D-Y-E, die, the more we live. And the more we live, the more we die. I thought, that's a great motto for the Christian. <laughs> we live to die, we die to live. The more we live, the more we die. The more we die, the more we live. You're dead to sin, to Satan. You're a dead man, but you're alive to Christ. The body of sin might be rendered inoperative, put out of business. Now, you've got to know that. If you don't know that, you can never act on it. So he says, knowing this, know that. For he who had dies, has died, verse 7, has been freed from sin or loosed from sin. Or, one translation, cleared from sin. So you might have a debt against you, but the moment you die, you know, they're not going to come collect at the cemetery. Hey, I know you're down there. You owe this money, man. As soon as you're dead, you're debt free. Now, don't get any ideas. <laughs> the idea is this in the scripture. The prison has been opened. You're free. You don't have to be Satan's slave anymore. You can if you want to if you want to yield territory, but you don't have to. But there's a problem. That's why you don't only need to know, but you have to reckon and you have to yield and you have to obey. Sin is attractive. 
very attractive. It's very alluring. And just like Israel was taken out of Egypt, there was still a lot of Egypt inside of Israel. And they wanted to go back and be slaves again. Imagine, they cried out because they were slaves. Now they're in the desert and they want to go be slaves again. Oh, I miss Egypt, man. We had good food, didn't we? Really? Slave food? That was good. Yeah, well, we had garlics and onions and, you know, pepper and salt and stuff. And all the little things that are like condiments they talked about. They, they were willing to go back to slavery for leeks and garlics and onions? They were tired of the manna. They wanted to become slaves again. But why go back? Imagine Lazarus going, Jesus, you know, I, I missed that tomb. I mean, it's just it's really bright out here, and it was like warm and safe in there. Can I go back? That's, that's ridiculous, yeah? Isn't it ridiculous if you've been freed from sin, and you're on your way to the kingdom to want to go back? And so, he who has died has been freed from sin. Of course, we also know that Satan is clever, isn't he? And he'll come to you and he'll say, Do you remember way back when, before you were into this religious nonsense, remember all the friends you had? Remember all the parties you went to? And he'll, he'll cause you to have selective memory disorder. <laughs> to remember certain things about the past and embellish them, and of course, you know, that's been removed by a few months, a few years, and it makes it a lot bigger and better than it really was. Truth is, you were alienated and alone and miserable and seeking purpose. That's why you came to Christ to begin with. But he tries to take and cover all that up and remind you about certain things. So we need to know who we're alive to and who we're dead to. Verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, here comes the second word, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's another word, reckon. Paul says, reckon. Yourself, So it proves that he was from Texas, right? <laughs> it's a favorite word of people down south. I reckon, my grandma used to say that, I reckon. Oftentimes, the word, when used by that wonderful group of people, the southerners, means to guess or to suppose. That's not the biblical meaning of I reckon or reckon yourselves to be dead. doesn't mean, yeah, I suppose. I guess it means to count on, to rely on as fate accompli, an accomplished fact. It's over with. It's done. Count on it. Believe it to be true. The Greek word is legizomai. It's the same word as imputed, if you remember a few studies back. It was imputed unto Abraham for righteousness because he believed God. Legizomai, put to your account. So it's like saying, I believe that what God has said about me in my word is true in actuality in my life. That's what the word means, reckon. An illustration. When an Orthodox Jew converts to Christianity, oftentimes the Jewish father will say, my son is dead to me. He'll literally say that. My son is dead to me. It doesn't mean that his son literally 
expired, has breathed his last, is buried in the ground, but he is dead in relationship to him. He's dead in the community life to him. And he supposes it to be true. He treats his son as if his son is dead now because he's converted to Christianity. He's not a, no longer a part of the Jewish community. So I treat him, I suppose, I reckon that he's dead. We're to reckon ourselves dead. We're to treat ourselves the same way. Paul didn't say, feel as if you're dead to sin. Boy, how miserable would that be? Because sometimes you feel like you're dead to sin, but there's a lot of times you feel you're really alive to sin. It is there. It's right there. I could do it real easily. And you're thinking, I don't think I'm really dead to that because it's something I want to do. That's where reckoning comes in. Believe what God said in his word about you to be an accomplished fact. Now, you live in a body of flesh. You have appetites of the flesh. They're normal. They're not abnormal. They're not weird. You have a, an appetite to eat food, to drink water. There are sexual drives within your body. Those are normal. God put them there. God designed you that way. But he never designed you to be in slavery to those things or to have the appetites have dominion over you where you have to obey them. And so he'll say, don't let sin reign. Well, it's the next verse. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. The word reign is reign as king. Don't let it occupy the throne of your life. Don't let it have the upper hand. Don't let sin reign. One time it did reign. At one time you were a slave of sin. As he's going to point out in the next few verses, uh, sin was your master. Or I should say the devil was your master. You were on staff. And you got paid. And he paid well. The wages of sin is death. When you come to Christ, it's like, I quit before payday. The wages of sin is death. I quit before payday. You don't have to get those wages. You can have a free gift, which is everlasting life or eternal life. You need to reckon that. You, I know this. I now count that it's true. And I'm not going to let sin reign in my mortal body that I should obey it in its lust. Take control of your body. I believe, because of this verse, don't let sin, we have control. God gives us control over the appetites of the flesh. So much Christian literature speaks about the inner person, the inner man, developing character, and that's good. There's not a whole lot written or spoken about the physical you. And yet Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, Each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And I believe God has given us control. And I'll admit there are times where I don't take the control for the Spirit, but I let sin take control of me. And that's, that's the whole issue he's dealing with. Martin Luther said, You can't stop birds from flying around your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. Temptation's out there. Satan's out there. The birds are out there. But don't let him have the opportunity. So don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. Verse 13. Here's the third word. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. No, reckon, present. What does it mean to present? 
what it sounds like. It means present. And in Greek, it means present. And in English, it means present. Here, Lord, I'm giving you my body. It's yours. Use it for your glory. The members, the members of your body, hands, feet, mouth, eyes. The word instruments, if you have a uh, New King James, you look in the margin, what does it say? Weapons. That great? Don't let your members of your body be weapons for the devil, but weapons for God. You know, uh, one of the um, rules, I would think, in warfare is never let the enemy have your weapon. Right? I mean, if you're, you wouldn't say, hey, could you hold my gun? I got to tie my shoe. Okay. Now, our bodies can become instruments, weapons for the enemy. David's eyes gazed at Bathsheba, and he lusted then in his heart. David's mouth lied to Uriah the Hittite. David's hand signed the death warrant for him to be killed on the lines. He yielded himself as a a weapon for the wrong use. So, present. Don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but present or yield yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. There's a little girl who went to bed at night and somewhere in the middle of the night she fell out of bed. And she was crying and her mom came in and picked her up and put her in bed and said, Honey, what happened? And the little girl was sobbing. She said, I think I stayed too close to the place where I got in. (laughs) Isn't that our problem? We stay too close to the edge. We just sort of make it into the kingdom of God, but we don't keep, well, go, keep going. Get away from the edge. Some people sail so close to the lake of fire, their sails get singed. It's like, how close can I get? Still be a Christian, you know. Get away. Don't let the enemy hold your gun. Yield your body as members of righteousness. Or present. It's used five times. To place at one's disposal or to offer up as a sacrifice. We'll read it about the 12th chapter. I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. Think about how in the Bible people's members of their body were used for righteousness. Paul's feet to go all over the Roman Empire to preach the gospel. The mouth of the prophets to speak the word of God. The hands and the arms of David to defeat the enemies of God by his sling. So you can yield yourself to God. What then, verse 15, shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Now there's a whole other section dealing with whose slave are you, God's or sin's. And by the way, you're somebody's slave. We'll talk about that next week. I just think it's such an important turnaround a topic that we'll save it for next week. But there's a point I want to close with. When it says present your members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, here's my point. The best defense, you know, we're always wondering about, I'm being tempted, man. How do I flee temptation? Well, you flee temptation. You get out of it. You get away from the edge. But I think the best defense is a strong offense. Be proactive in temptation. That doesn't mean yell at the devil like some people say you should do. Come on, devil. Don't worry. Don't even talk to him. That's bogus. 
When I say a good offense, what I mean is if you are so busy about the work of the kingdom, if you would be so busy presenting your hands, your feet, your mouth, your ears for the sake of the kingdom of God, you wouldn't have much time left over to worry about the attacks of the devil to use them for instruments of unrighteousness. How do I defeat the devil? How do I overcome this temptation? Well, let me give you a few practical suggestions. It might not sound like what you're used to, but why don't you get involved in the convalescent home ministry? Why don't you work in the children's ministry? Why don't you get busy passing out tracts for the resurrection Sunday coming up? Use the time of day that you have left over to spread the kingdom of God and say, hey, I've got some time left over. My hands are your hands, God. My eyes are yours. My mouth is yours. Use me. I present myself to you. Know, reckon, yield, present. And the fourth one next time will be obey.